0: Let's pray. My God, our God, how great you are. Thank you for your spirit who inspired the men to write your word. And I pray that by your spirit, you might help us to understand the truth of this word. Help us to take it. Help us to live it. Help us interact with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, Paul had some unfinished business to take care of when he was writing to the Corinthians. Though they caused him a lot of headaches, they were still his spiritual children. He came to Corinth preaching the gospel. Some repented of their sin and believed and followed Jesus. And a church was established there. But over the many weeks we've been studying 1 Corinthians, we've had a ringside seat as we have watched and we've listened to Paul deal with their number one problem. And what was that number one problem? Disunity. Yes, you've been looking at the paper. That's right. Between the time that he left Corinth and the writing of this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, Paul heard some things that must have devastated him. Groups following their favorite spiritual leader, sexual immorality, lawsuits between fellow Christians, spiritual pride. And so much more greatly concerned Paul. This is the church. Now, as we know, Paul began his letter reminding them of the gospel that he proclaimed to them when he first got into town. First Corinthians chapter two, verse two. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A Christ crucified. Wait for it. Finish it, Paul. What's missing? Is there something missing here? Yeah. What was it? Oh, yeah, the resurrection of Christ. Now, if you studied how Paul wrote his letters in any detail throughout his writings, you will notice that sometimes he begins things and then he kind of leaves it go and, uh, and goes down through some rabbit trails, sanctified rabbit trails, maybe some long rabbit trails. For example, in Romans, Paul begins to talk about the glories of God that he gave his people, the Jews, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he says. What then advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then Paul goes along a really long rabbit trail, talking about the gospel and what that all means. And then in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he kind of picks up where he left off. And he says this, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So it seems to me that Paul does the same thing here, in 1 Corinthians, highlighting one part of the gospel, the crucifixion of Christ, in the first couple of chapters. And then he goes on a long, sanctified rabbit trail. And then he completes the circuit, presenting the resurrection of Christ in chapter 15. Now, Paul, I'm convinced, needed to deal with areas of disunity before he finished what should have united the Corinthians in the first place, which was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we'll see throughout this chapter, Paul masterfully set before them the teaching of the resurrection. It was as if in the first 14 chapters, Paul was emphasizing to the Christians the first part of the gospel, that they needed to die to themselves like Christ died for them so that they could, you know, engage in unity. And then in chapter 15, they needed to embrace the truth of the resurrection. So in order to, as we so often say here at Grace United, that they could live together in love in unity. And so Paul lays out in our passage for today, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, that there are two sides of the gospel. The death of Christ and his resurrection. And the Corinthians needed to fully embrace the historical fact that Christ indeed rose from the dead. Now we say this is a no-brainer, but... In the church in Corinth, there were some who were attached there who actually denied this truth. And as we will see and go through this chapter, if there is no bodily resurrection from the dead, then we are all in trouble. So let me tell you where we're headed in this passage. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that Paul reminding them and reminding us of what unifies not only the Christians in Corinth, but every Christian in every church down through the ages, and that is the gospel. This is the foundation upon which salvation rests. And then in verses 3 to 8, Paul gives them the facts of the actual unadulterated gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection, and the appearances of Christ. And then verses eight to 11, we will see how the gospel functioned in Paul's own life. For the gospel, as Paul told the Romans, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so First 1 Corinthians 151 and 2, if you don't have it out yet, please uh, pull it out, and we'll read together these first two verses. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters. Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, in these verses, Paul reminds his beloved Corinthians of his ministry in their lives. He addresses them as spiritual siblings. Siblings because of the gospel. They are family. And as the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is our elder brother. Isn't that amazing? He's our elder brother. As great as Jesus is, King of kings, Lord of lords, we are spiritually related to him. Now chew on that. Don't take that for granted. It's not a ho-hum thing to be related to the King of kings. You know, if you have repented of your sin and humbled yourself before the Lord, and believe the gospel, you are related to Jesus. As we're going to see in the next section, how great and mighty that truth really is. And then Paul reminds them that he preached the gospel to them. You know, someone had to do it. Someone had to make the first move and enter into that pagan place. The Lord Jesus sent Paul to them. The Holy Spirit convicted them. And before long, a church was born in Corinth. Now, this was God's doing, and Paul was a fellow worker with God in this. And Paul opened his mouth and gave them the gospel, but it was the power of the Spirit who convicted the Corinthians and gave them eternal life. But now, notice the implied warning here. You Corinthians, you receive the gospel, you're standing in it, and you are saved if, literally since, you hold fast to the word I preach to you, wait for it, unless you believed in vain. Hmm. The warning is clear. Unless you believed in vain. Throughout this letter, Paul makes his point. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 11, his point becomes very, very sharp. And he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says. And then he gives a grossly list of all these different sins. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But now notice that Paul did not say here, you never believed in the first place. He didn't say that. He said, you believed in vain. In other words, if you believed in vain, if you believed, if, if, if the gospel meant nothing to you, and even though you believed it, if it didn't affect your life, Paul is saying, you believed in vain. In Matthew 7, the Lord Jesus said words that ought to keep us up at night, especially those of our loved ones who don't know Christ or those who are religious hypocrites. He said, many will, Jesus will tell many on the day of judgment, depart from me, for I never knew you. Who will be those that the Lord will say these tragic words to? Will it be the Satan worshipers and the pagans and somebody who just hates God? Not at all. It will be to those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And did we not... Do many mighty works in your name. But he will tell many on that day, those who call him Lord in this life, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's literally you who practice lawlessness. Now, we can be religious, we can believe Jesus to be the king, we can believe him to be the Lord. But when we practice and we live our lives practicing lawlessness, and John defines lawlessness as sin, when we practice as a lifestyle sin, there's a telltale sign that those who live this way, Jesus will tell them, depart from me. And don't mishear me, though. I'm not saying that we are called to live perfectly, because where would the grace be? Now, I'm talking about a person who has really repented from their sins and believed the gospel of Christ. What do they do? They practice righteousness. We know the old phrase, right? Practice makes what? Perfect. But practicing here, practicing, intentionality. See, people who are Christians seek the kingdom of God. The Lord has put it into our hearts to practice his ways however imperfectly that is. But what does it mean to practice righteousness? Consider athletics or music or anything that requires a person to hone a skill. Got that picture in your mind? Maybe it's you. What do they do? They love what they do. So what do they do? They practice. Why do they practice? So they can get better at it. But now consider an athlete or a musician wannabe, all right? You know that kind of person? They talk about being an athlete. They talk about being a musician, but they never put on the tennis shoes. They never pick up the guitar. Now, they can talk all day long about how they are athletes or how they are you know, musicians. But are they? How they prioritize their lives to include how they spend their time, tells us all the information that we need to know. And that's a major difference between a true follower of Jesus and one who is not. The short answer is that a saved person will be a practitioner, not a perfect one, a practitioner of righteousness because the Spirit of God has changed his or her heart. That's why a Christ follower takes in Scripture. That's why a Christ follower prays. That's why we fellowship together. That's why we worship together. So that we may practice righteousness. But a disciple wannabe doesn't practice righteousness. Disciple wannabe talks a good line, but there's no evidence that they are practicing righteousness. Horrifically. Horrifically. This person will hear. Depart from me. I never knew you because you're practicing lawlessness. Don't be a wannabe disciple, be a true Christian. Now, Paul reminds the Corinthians here, the believers here, of the foundation of their salvation it is the gospel. But now let's look at the facts of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance of what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Hmm. Straightforward facts. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised again. And Christ appeared to people on this side of the grave. To many, they are mere facts. But let's look at these facts. First, notice how Paul referred to the one who died and rose again, Christ. Now, that doesn't mean nearly as much to us as it did to Paul, I would venture. And I'm convinced that in part because we're not Jewish. See, there was a special idea, a special concept, a special person that the Jews were looking for. See, because Christ is another word for Messiah, Every deeply committed Jew longed for and longs for Messiah. Because in Messiah, all promises converge on him. All promises of God come together in Messiah. All glory and honor and power go to the Messiah. In one body of Jewish literature called the Talmud, it states that the world was created for Messiah and that all the prophets prophesied of his days. It almost sounds a little bit like in Colossians, for example. The world was made by him and for him, through him. But now who was Paul in his BC days? Jewish, religious leader, a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. See, it was his passion and his job to make sure that his people believe the right things, and live the right way to make room for the Messiah. And then along comes this imposter named Jesus. There was a lot of talk about him. The Jewish leaders were glad to see him crucified. And even though the scripture doesn't say it, I'm pretty sure that Saul, that was his original name, Paul's original name, that he was among those who said, crucify him. Saul was there when Stephen was stoned for being a witness for Christ, as we saw today in Bible Fellowship time. He watched over the coats of those who participated in his martyrdom. And Saul had a deep passion to do away with the followers of the way, Jesus of Nazareth. Then Christ met Paul on the road road to Damascus. And though Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest the followers of the way, Jesus arrested him and changed him for eternity. And Saul learned quick, fast, and in a hurry that the Messiah that he was waiting for and preparing to serve when he arrived was the one who knocked him to the ground. Paul was converted, and he never looked back. And for the rest of his days, he served the Messiah, the Christ. And so when Paul articulated the gospel and proclaimed it was a Messiah who died, that was profoundly personal for Paul. The one who died was to rule the world. And why did he die? He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, which means he died. I mean, really dead. Isn't that what we do with dead people? We bury them. He was raised by the power of God in the third day after he died in accordance with the Scriptures. Two of the three facts regarding the Gospel. Christ died and rose again according to the Scriptures. It was predicted in the Old Testament Scriptures that Messiah, that Christ would experience this. And Jesus, who is the Christ, this very one who died and rose again, it was him. And I think of Isaiah who wrote in his book, 53rd chapter. He's got some words of prediction that he wrote about 700 years before the coming of Messiah. Listen to some of these words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs All of our iniquity. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And on the white space, does that not here speak of resurrection? After he poured out his soul, he then will see his offspring. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous for his sake and what he did. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is Isaiah's prediction of Messiahs, of Christ's death and resurrection. But what about his burial for three days? The Lord himself made that prediction. Remember when the Pharisees demanded that Jesus give them a sign to prove who he was? Here's what he says in Matthew 12, 39 and 40. He says, no sign is going to be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, there's a lot we can say here about the unfaithful, bigoted, and even racist Jonah, right? But the Lord Jesus actually used Jonah's rebellion as an object lesson to paint for Jesus' opponents about his own burial. What grace and what mercy that is. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ is the heart of the gospel. But notice what Paul says about his appearances. Paul says he recounts no less than 6 separate scenarios where Jesus appeared to people his people. And notice, it wasn't he he didn't appear to the entire world, just his own people. Peter he appeared to. The rest of the apostles, James, Christ's own half-brother he appeared. 500 believers at one time. And at the time that Paul wrote the letter, he said most of these We're still vertical. It was as if Paul was saying, hey, resurrection deniers, if you don't believe me, go talk to these guys. They'll tell you the story. It's only been about 20 years since that happened. And then as Paul describes himself as one untimely born, like one who was stillborn, Christ appeared to him as well. There's a lot we can say about these appearances, but let me just say this. The emphasis that Paul placed on the gospel is simply this, that Christ died and his death was reinforced by including in that story his burial. That's one half of the emphasis. The other half of the emphasis is that Jesus rose again and his appearances solidified his resurrection. These are the facts of the gospel. And Paul gave his life living out his conviction that Christ was none other than this Jesus of Nazareth. And it is this gospel that was supposed to unify the Corinthians. But they apparently forgot this. It only took a few years for the Corinthian believers to seemingly have turned their backs on Christ himself. Again, Christ, the Messiah, was the very one to the where they were all to look to be as the object of worship and as their leader. But what did they do? They began to quarrel among themselves about who they were going to follow, about which human man they were going to follow. The Messiah died for their sins and was buried and rose again in accordance with the Scripture. But how often did Paul call them out for their what? Their sin. Paul actually had to chide them and very directly tell them to stop being so proud of their sinful progressivism and kick the man out of their fellowship who had an ancestral relationship with his stepmother. Paul had to instruct them that those who practice unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Corinthians were filled with pride in their corporate worship setting. If they worshiped Christ, then did God accept it? Well... You tell me, he killed some of those because some spiritual siblings didn't allow other spiritual siblings to participate in the Lord's Supper. In short, in these verses, Paul implored them, Y'all get back to the gospel because this is what unifies you. He alone can produce unity and love among you. But lest we go to thinking and feeling that we're not doing as bad as the Corinthians. I think we need to evaluate our own lives, perhaps even in this fellowship. See, I'm convinced that the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century has adopted a gospel with little power. Oh, we present the gospel accurately as far as the content goes, but I think it's lost its power in many ways. Because we believe less than a powerful gospel, many of us have little spiritual Strength. Let me ask as soberly as I can these things. What if tomorrow things were to change in Virginia? Radically change. And we were no longer allowed to meet together on Sunday morning worship. Well, we do. Let's say what if Governor Northam adopted the same policy as Governor Newsom in California does right now? where none could meet for worship? What if we could not even meet for Bible study, which is another rule in California? And let's say, what if Facebook Live was not an option either because speaking the truth of this gospel would be considered hate speech? And speaking of hate speech, what if we were not allowed to tell our neighbors and friends about Jesus, even in our own little private circles? What if there would be snitch lines open so that people would report or could report hate speech anonymously? And what if these policies were to become permanent? You think it's impossible? It could happen. How would you fare? How would I fare? Would we have the strength to weather this storm Will we dare defy the government and continue to serve the Lord in the face of fines and jail time? We're not far away from this. We've already heard mayors in big cities warn to threaten churches, to permanently lock them, and even to raise some of them to the ground. So persecution is not coming to our shores. My brothers and sisters, it's already here. But what is it about the gospel, the divine power that gives us salvation that has been weakened? Because I'm convinced it has been weakened. How is it that people can believe in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus and still have very little power to live a vigorous godliness in their daily lives? Or how is it? to somehow have the inability to demonstrate spiritual strength in the face of persecution that is sure to come to our doors, maybe sooner rather than later. How is it? What's been weakened? I'm convinced that the gospel, that we've come to embrace a gospel of little power, is because of a couple of tweaks. Small tweaks, but tweaks nonetheless. Tweaks that may not seem to be tweaks at all. But I believe they've done a lot of damage. And what are the tweaks? Simply encapsulated this way. Jesus loves me so much that he died for me. Now, does that sound like anything of a problem? I think this is the gospel that many people believe. That Jesus loves me so much that he died for me. But how's that compared to what Paul proclaimed? Because what was his understanding of Messiah? He was king, ruler. And what did he die for? Our sins. Our sins. He rose again and he appeared to only a few. Now well, that's kind of unfair, isn't it? It's a little bit different way of understanding than what so often we understand the gospel as. Now, our way of understanding the gospel is not wrong per se, but as I heard it put one day, it's not wrong, but it's incomplete. When we think of Jesus on the cross, how often do we think that he was a victim of the religious establishment and got caught up in the political intrigue of the day? See, Jesus was nothing but loving and kind. And he was arrested and tried and convicted. And the flagellum and the crown of thorns were applied. He was stripped, bare, naked, and nails were driven into his hands and his feet. The spear pierced his side. When the Messiah was on the cross, he had full control of his mind. And he took and he felt every pang. And he suffered for you and for me. How many of us would take pity and feel sorry for him? See, we see this in horror in our mind's eyes and we recoil from this. How can one man endure such pain and suffering? And we call this love. First John 3, 6, or John three sixteen says, For God loved the world so much, He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, we think and feel about all that Jesus went through dying for me, for me. I must be pretty special. I think of a recent song. Lyrics go like this. You may have heard this before. I don't need my name in lights. I'm famous in my father's eye. Make no mistake, he knows my name. I'm not living for applause. I'm already so adored. It's all his stage. He knows my name. Now, does he love us? Absolutely, he does. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We think and feel about all that Jesus went through, dying for me. Me. Now, you may have noticed I kind of misquoted John 3.16 a second ago. But what does this verse really say? This word so here is very, very important. Because the word so here does not mean so as in so much. It doesn't mean qual- quantity. It means how he did it. See, this is literally what John 3.16 says. For God loved the world this way. This is how he loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But why make such a big deal out of this, you might be asking? Simply but profoundly, we have a very shallow view of sin and a very narrow, very shallow view of God ourselves. Does God love us? Yes, go like this. He loves us absolutely, perfectly, but just as perfectly, just as absolutely, God is holy and he's pure. He's pure beyond pure. He's perfect beyond perfect. He perfectly knows everything, including the very depths of our hearts and even beyond. There's no way that we can scratch the surface of the depth of offense that God feels when we sin. Think about that. And God being perfect never gets used to sin. Every time we sin, it deeply offends him. Our sin is so heinous. It requires a blood sacrifice. The Jews knew this. So much blood. And when the person wanted to come and give an offering, This person took an animal, put his hands on the head of the animal as if to transfer the sin onto the animal. And then he took the knife and he killed the animal. And then he gave that to the priest and the priest took the blood and put it on the altar and then took the animal and put it on the altar and and burned it up in accordance with what God wanted in the correct way. But now, Christ has become our sacrifice for sin. All of it, every bit of it. It took Christ's hideous death to pay for our sin. That's the death of how abhorrent sin is to God. The death that we deserve to die for our sins was paid for by Messiah, by Christ. My sins were laid on Jesus. See, he was not a victim of the establishment. He volunteered to sacrifice himself. He was perfectly willing to do this. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, for this reason, my father loves me. Why? Because I lay my life down that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take up again. This I have received from. From my father. And the bottom line here is this how we need to somehow see our sin as God sees it. To the degree that we can see our sin as God sees it is the degree that we can appreciate what Jesus has done for us. So the choice is ours. We can either continue to view the gospel as Jesus loves me so much, they died for me. Or we can See, the gospel is Paul saw it. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, these are the facts of the gospel. Let's take a look now at how the gospel functioned in Paul's life because something happened to Paul. He says, I'm the least of the apostles in verses 9 through 11, unworthy to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Simply put, Paul never got over the wonder of the grace of God as found in Christ, the Messiah the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah who died for his sins and then rose again and then appeared to people. Mentioned a few minutes back that Paul was passionate about stomping out this sect called the way of the followers of Jesus, the Nazarene. And when Christ knocked him to the ground on that day, he traveled down the Damascus Road. I can imagine, can't you, his world caving in all the anger and all the rage directed toward the Christians. And he was bewildered. All of this rage was sadly misplaced, was it not? He was persecuting the Messiah. Now what? Every ounce of strength and energy he threw into persecuting the Christians was wrong. Everything he did was wrong. Ever been there? Well, some things we never forget, right? When we have life-encountering events that happen to our lives, they're never far from our minds. And to the very end of his life, Paul continued to refer to himself as a scoundrel. True? In one of the last letters he would ever write, Paul let Timothy, his pit, his pastor in training, in on a little secret. For Timothy 1.15, He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And back to 1 Corinthians 15. The grace of God overwhelmed Paul, completely captivated him. And Paul was never the same. He spent the rest of his life, as it were, making up for lost time. As he depended on the grace of God, Paul worked. Hard. Listen to what he said again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now, Grace United. What's wrong with this picture? I see a glaring discrepancy here. Of all people, Paul should know better. Than to work hard. So, I mean, even in this verse, Paul said he worked harder than any of them. Did he not here? As in, his fellow workers in the gospel. Do you see a problem here? I think if Paul were right here in person, I think we would chide him. Paul, you received the grace of God and you're working hard. It seems like you're boasting about this, he says. You worked harder than anybody else. Paul, are you trying to add works to grace? Paul, are you somehow trying to get saved now by your works? Isn't this what we so often think about when we think about working hard and working for the Lord? How many people do you know seem to display this attitude or actually even say that we better not work hard because we don't want to add works to grace? Can you see here how grace energizes the servants of God? See, rather than being afraid they're going to somehow be guilty of adding works to salvation, it's like they discovered true freedom now. They are free from sin. How is this? Because Messiah died for them. They are energized with the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And see, when you love someone, you want to please them, don't you? See, this was Jesus' experience. Did you know that? Christ was willing to take on your hell and my hell because he wanted to show the world something. Right before Jesus took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane when he had his last supper with his men, Jesus told them these things in John fourteen twenty eight to thirty one. He said, You heard me say to you, I'm going away and you will come, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the father is greater than I. And now I've told you before this takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I'm no longer I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world what may know that I love the father. Rise. Let us go from here. Did you catch that? Jesus wanted to show his love for his Father by going to the cross. He was ready to do battle with the enemy, locked in mortal combat. Jesus knew it would cost him his life. But he went there as a demonstration of his love for his Father. He did not hold back. Notice how he said, Rise, guys, let's go. Come on, men, watch me die for the sins of the world. I do this out of love for the Father. Paul never got over the grace, the wonder of this, of the Messiah. And that's the exact reason why he worked the way he did. He was not adding to grace, not remotely. His work was the grace of God flowing through him. But whether Paul worked or his partners worked in ministry, Paul said to, to the Corinthians, whether it was I preach or they preach, we preached and you believed. So, my brothers and sisters, what can we say about this? First of all, it is the gospel of the Messiah that has unified and will continue to unify the church. How so? Simply this Christ died for our sins. Christ died for all, and that makes us all what? (laughs) Sinners. Makes us all sinners, because Christ died for all sinners. That's the negative side of the equation. But what's the positive side? Positive side is that makes us all equal, doesn't it? None of us are any better or any worse than another. We all have our stuff, don't we? And since all of us are equal, Let's not waste our time trying to outdo one another and try to show that I'm better than you or you're better than me. Rather, let's spend our time appreciating one another as fellow image bearers of God. And for us as Grace United, this reminds us of our mission statement, a part of that, for we are to care for people regardless of where they are with the Lord. Second, we all need the gospel, don't we? I've heard it said that even Christians, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And since we're all sinners, we all need Christ. All of us need to come to that place where we see the wickedness of our ways. Where from the depth of our being, we say something like this, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm in dire need of your forgiveness. You are the Lord. I bow at your feet. I receive the forgiveness of sins that you offer. You said from the cross, it's finished, paid in full. Those are my sins that you paid for. I'm truly grateful for the price that you paid for my sins. Third, it is now a son question, not a sin question. See, Christ paid for our sins. And so the question of our sin has been taken care of. All sin of all humanity has been put upon the cross. Christ. I don't have to worry about what God will do with my sin. The issue before me is what I'm going to do with the son. And since I can't pay for my sin, I will respond to the Savior by expressing my gratitude. Or I will reject him and continue to be lost. But to express my gratitude, there are two questions that will help us with this. And these questions were the questions that Paul asked the Lord when he was knocked to the ground. And the first question was this. Paul asked him, Lord, who are you? See, we can use this question every day when we pray. When we open up the scriptures and take it in, we ask the question, Lord, who are you? It's fascinating to know that the Lord directly answered Paul and he said, I'm Jesus. And I'm sure that if we ask the Lord, Lord, who are you? He'll tell us, won't he? Second question we can, that one, guide us in this so that we can appreciate and we can express our love for him is the second question that Paul asked when he was on his face, now blinded by the light streaming from the Lord's face. Lord, what will you have me to do? And then when Paul asked the Lord this question, the Lord answered Paul right away. He says, go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. See, we don't have to rely upon our impressions, though, do we? We don't have to rely upon our feelings or seek a mystical experience. We have the Word of God. See, the Apostle Peter wrote these words in his second epistle, in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. He said this. He said, His divine power has granted to us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. In other words, we can be sure that if we want to know the will of God, all we have to do is open the book, give him our undivided attention. So here again, the gospel of our Lord, for I deliver to you as the first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures to God, be the glory, great things he has done. Let's show him our appreciation as we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. Let's pray. The gospel, Lord, is most precious to us. But that same gospel, Lord, is something that people hate as well. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room and all of us within the sound of my voice, that, Lord, that all of us would appreciate this gospel as being something most precious. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to live like we're grateful. Help us, Lord, to love you and to serve you because you loved us first. I pray now, Lord, as we turn our attention to our last song and our giving, I pray that you will help us to continue worshiping and we will give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.